science. Welcome to Love and Science. We do have a really packed show and I want to get straight on with it. This last week I've been at Cheltenham Science Festival. I've had some really fascinating conversations with people and I'll bring you the first of those now. This is Professor Alice Roberts, who you'll know from BBC TV and an awful lot of work that she's done, both here at the University of Bristol and now at the University of Birmingham. And one of the things that we do here on the show is to take questions from the listeners and put them to scientists. And I began with Alice by putting a question that we'd had to her. Um, I'm driving along uh, with my daughter in the seat next to me and she's, she's five and she's called Lyra and she said, um, she said, Daddy, what I really want to know is how do we grow? I've got some answers for her, I think, but that's an incredibly, as often happens from five-year-olds and, and older children as well, um, you get some incredible questions that make you think really hard and this is why I'm always encouraging academics to go out and do talks in schools as well as talking to adult audiences because it tests your own ability to uh, articulate and even con- to conceptualise your own subject, actually. So, so let's think about this. How do we grow? What does she mean by that? Does she mean what makes us grow? What drives us to grow? If she means that, then uh, there are answers there in terms of there's a programme of development, there are hormones that kick in, particularly steroid hormones that kick in at various times during your development that spur you on and that um, increase the proliferation of tissues. Um, So that's one answer to that. Another answer might be to look at it at a tissue level. This might be quite tricky for her. If she knows what a cell is, if she's got some kind of concept that bodies of animals and plants are built of cells, then another, another answer to how those bodies grow is quite simple, actually, uh, is by adding more cells. But there are other ways that you can get something to grow bigger, and that's by cells are, uh, are quite often surrounded by a matrix of, uh, of something which is not cellular, so some kind of goo or something fibrous. Um, so you could add more to that as well. So you can add more to the extracellular matrix. Um, or, actually, rather than increasing the number of cells, you could increase the size of the cells, and that would mean that the tissue or the, um, the, the organ as a whole would, would grow a bit bigger. So these are kinds of really... Um, I suppose, process-driven answers. I suspect at the root of her question is something actually a lot deeper and a lot more philosophical. And it's about how you take something and make it bigger uh, whilst ensuring that it's the same object. You know, how does her body, how does she get bigger so that, um, you know, in a month's time when she's she's probably grown a few millimetres taller and bigger all over, it's still her. And that is utterly fascinating because we are, it's, it's this whole, it goes back to that Herodotus quote, doesn't it, about never being able to step in the same river twice. We are constantly remaking ourselves, literally remaking ourselves. You know, you, the atoms in your body now are not the atoms that were in your body 20, 30 years ago. They have been turned over. Even things which we think of as being relatively static in our bodies, like bone, for instance, are actually really dynamic. Even the most compact bits of bone get turned over every seven years or so. Um, so there are some tissues which are turning over all the time, um, like uh, things, that, things which do that really quickly are the, are the obvious things like hair. You know that does because it's growing. Nails. Skin is constantly growing and sloughing off at the surface. Your gut 
lining is constantly growing and sloughing off of the surface. But even tissues like bone are changing over time. There are cells that eat them away and there are cells that make more of them. Uh, and that is a process which is, which is continually happening. I, I, you, you blow my mind, so I don't know what you can do to that. <laughs> And there's loads of different... It's such a good question, isn't it? Because actually it it encompasses so many different avenues of thought. I could develop a whole lecture out of your daughter's single question and it would be a very entertaining thing to do, I think. I'd enjoy it anyway. Um, So if we look at, for instance, how bones grow, that's fascinating. So her bones at the age of five will the ends of the bone will be separate from the shaft of the bone there'll be a wadge of cartilage in between and the cartilage is where most of the growth goes on because cartilage is really good at growing quickly and bone is not so good at growing quite so quickly and when she's fully grown that cartilage will disappear and that plate of cartilage at the ends of her bones will close down so that's how the skeleton grows so there are so many different answers to this question yeah amazing do the lecture come on i'll bring it (gasps) science festival next year let's do it in the news recently this week we got older again we we go back further in time again it keeps happening what what's going on uh it was a bit mind-blowing actually um and i got a bit of a heads up from uh, my very good friend adam rutherford who presents inside science um, and was also an editor at nature for a long time and uh i had the embargoed press release i was giving a talk in a school that evening it was wednesday and uh, I was able, in the middle of my talk, to show them the press release because it had just reached 7 o'clock where the embargo was lifted. And this was the incredible news that uh, fossils from Jebel Arud in Morocco had been dated uh, as being 350,000 years old. Now, to understand the full import of this, those fossils are recognised as being modern human, Homo sapiens, our species. And actually, those fossils have been recognised as being modern human for a very long time, with nobody really contesting that. The problem is, is what we had before was a date of 160,000 years. Um, and the earliest fossils that we had recognised as modern human uh, up until Wednesday uh, were those from Omicabish in Ethiopia, so very much an East African story. And they went back to around about 195,000 years ago. And, and that, has been, you know, that has been the story for a long time, that our species is about 200,000 years old. Here are the, here are the oldest fossils and so this date from Jebel Arud pushes that back by 150,000 years. It's quite extraordinary. There are two different types of dating there. It's been published in an extremely reputable journal. I don't think there's any reason to doubt the, the dating. And there really isn't any reason to doubt the uh, interpretation of them as modern human. You know, we haven't, we haven't doubted that in the past. Why should we start doubting that now? So we are looking at a much earlier origin for our species someone being someone that is involved with research in human evolution and interested in this field it just opens a bit of a can of worms for me i'm now starting to think okay so uh the middle stone age in africa this this new technology that comes along around that time um and uh, we thought that there was a disconnect between species and uh, stone tool types well perhaps there's not a disconnect anymore perhaps when we see the msa the middle stone age appearing in africa that is when modern humans appear on the scene um, we need to test that, we need to look at a lot more sites. It makes you think, well, perhaps rather than being an exclusively East or maybe South African story, the story of human origins is pan-African. You know, are we talking about not multi-regionalism again, but at least speciation across a continent rather than speciation in a really small locality? Um, so it, it makes us think about our general theories about evolution and how species originate, as well as being another really important advance in our understanding of human origins you've written a book i'm I'm, i was going to ask you actually how on earth do you do everything you do and write books 
I've got loads of your books, and you've written another one. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I think this is number eight. Yeah. And I've got number number nine, ten, and eleven in my head, ready to go. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah. So I I've really fallen in love with writing. I think that's how I do it. That is my, has to be the answer to how I do it. I I love writing. I look forward to doing it. I really like writing in the evenings. Um, I've always enjoyed working in the evenings anyway, and and, and writing. I just I always find it quite indulgent, quite an indulgent pastime. So I'm always in danger of sounding like a workaholic, I think, when I say that, you know, I enjoy writing in the evenings and I work until I go to bed. But I I really, it doesn't feel like work. I'm reading things that I'm interested in. Um, I'm not always uh, reading and writing about science. I do read novels as well. I have a particular soft spot for Neil Gaiman. I'm just starting The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Um, And I love uh, doing all sorts of outdoors activities as well so I love cycling I love kayaking at the coast all of that sort of thing so I'm not completely obsessed with work uh, but I think that you know I think that if you can find something that you love doing then you're very lucky actually Um, I feel very lucky in you know doing what I do tell me about Tamed so Tamed is the title of my new book uh, which I have literally just finished writing I've just got to check over the copy edit I'm looking at final covers at the moment which look beautiful and I am now insisting on having gold on every single hardback cover any book that I write as it will have gold on it (laughs) and um, it's about the origin of domesticated species I've chosen ten ranging from dogs and horses through to wheat and potatoes and apples and humans because I think we're self-domesticated um, so that's what the book's about and it's about how it's about this, it's about the history of discovery it's about how we've worked out where these species have come from it's about how genetics now comes together with archaeology um, and traditional disciplines like botany and paleontology to help us get to the roots of these uh, of these species um, and it's it's fascinating I've really enjoyed writing this book because it's about the philosophy of science as well it's about the processes that we've gone through actually very recently thinking about how evolution works and how species come into being it it starts deep in prehistory with wild species and then it comes all the way through domestication and then looks at how those species became global and I'm taking it on tour. So this book will be out in October. I think it's October the 17th, publication date. And I'm taking it on tour in uh, October and November. And I'm coming back to Cheltenham. So I will be back in Cheltenham um, doing one date in my tour. That's all on my website, uh, which is www.alice-roberts.co.uk. Okay. Anywhere nearer Bristol than Cheltenham? Bristol. Yeah. I hope you're doing Bristol. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Professor Alice Roberts talking to me at Cheltenham Science Festival and another person I met at Cheltenham Science Festival is Dr Ellen Stofan, the former chief scientist of NASA. Yes, that's right. The former chief scientist of NASA right here on BCFM now. And I began by asking her of all the missions she's been involved in, is there one that stood out for her? You know, for me, it's really been the Cassini mission that's so dear to my heart. It's been in orbit around Saturn since 2003. When you have over a decade's worth of data of the Saturn system, which all these individual worlds, each one of them fascinating. Um, I think those of us that worked on it hoped it would never end, but obviously the spacecraft's running out of fuel, and we have to safely dispose of it in the atmosphere of Saturn to keep it away from Enceladus. And so Enceladus is one of the amazing stories of the the Cassini mission. Basically, Cassini um, 
we discovered plumes um, of water erupting from a subsurface ocean on Enceladus. How amazing is that? And not only that, we actually flew the Cassini spacecraft right through those eruption plumes. That's why we know they're made of water. We also know that there are big organic molecules coming out of that ocean. There are silica particles. And you put all those things together, and it really makes us wonder about, could this be a great place to go search for life? In fact, it just happens that the instruments we had on Cassini weren't designed to look for life. And so those big organic molecules, could they be something like amino acids? Could they be something more complex? Well, our instrument couldn't tell us that. But let's go back and find out. And that's just one of the discoveries of Cassini. Uh, the behavior of Saturn's atmosphere, the dynamics of Saturn's rings, um, all of the amazing moons, and then my favorite moon, Titan, um, the only other place in the solar system besides Earth where it rains. It's not rain like we know. No, at 90 degrees Kelvin on the surface of Titan, instead of uh, it being water rain like we have here on Earth, it's actually liquid methane and liquid ethane. Um, those are a liquid at those extremely cold temperatures, but it's behaving just like water behaves in our hydrologic cycle. So it rains, uh, it evaporates up off the surface, forms clouds, rains again. So this whole cycle, but different fluid. Well, it, the other thing you just said, which was just kind of tripped off the tongue like it was the normal thing that you do, was we flew the spacecraft through those plumes. So is that before you send it out there, you know you're going to do that, or is that a decision you make, and then how do you actually make it do that? You know, we didn't know the plumes existed when the spacecraft was designed, and, and so the big decision when you're doing something new with a spacecraft is, ooh, how dangerous is this? You know, because obviously you're flying a spacecraft through particles. Um, you have to make assumptions about how big those particles are going to be. You don't want them to damage your spacecraft. So you're taking a chance with the spacecraft when you do something like that. But in this case, our engineers decided they thought it was safe. They gave us the go-ahead, and we actually did it more than once. Um, we actually flew through those blimps more than once. So extremely amazing and fun science. You know, I always study the inner planets of the solar system, especially Venus and Mars. And, you know, people that studied icy satellites in the outer solar system, I was like, oh, I don't do that. All the cool stuff is on the inner solar system. So when I started working on Cassini, on Titan, I never expected to so fall in love with this world where all of a sudden I was looking at deltas formed by rivers running into an alien sea. I was looking at coastlines modified by storms on a sea halfway across the solar system. And to me, it was horribly romantic. You know, it's just this idea of um, of studying this world that it is going to inform us so much about the Earth, but is still so strange and wonderful. And it just made me love Cassini. So there's a lot of us that will be very, very, very sad in September when that mission comes to an end. But we need to go back. Well, I mean, I hope you know, I'm sure you do, but I hope you know that there's so many of us out here who just love that mission so much as well. It's just spectacular. That idea of taking photographs brings it to the public so much more. It allows us to be armchair explorers. You know, it allows us to be part of that process of discovery. It allows, it allow, you know, science festivals like Cheltenham allow us to bring the public um, into the fun. You know, we shouldn't be able to have all the fun as scientists. We need to let other people have a little of that fun, too. What is the role of the chief science person at NASA? 
you know, I have to be honest with you. When they first called me and asked me if I would be interested in interviewing for the job, I Googled it because I'm like, what the heck does the chief scientist do? Because science, um, science planning at NASA, we normally are, are implementing, if it's studying the sun, studying this planet, studying the solar system, we basically look to the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S., who puts together sort of 10-year strategic plans called decadal surveys on what should NASA be doing scientifically. So we very much look to the broader scientific community to get our science goals. So the chief scientist isn't doing that. They're really looking across NASA and saying, are we balanced? How are we conducting research across the agency? How are we supporting our scientists within NASA and outside of NASA? How are we doing in human spaceflight? Because there's a lot of science in the human spaceflight, from the work we do on the International Space Station to what I spend a lot of time working on is how are we going to get humans to Mars? Now, science isn't all of why we're going to Mars, but it's a big part of it. So I worked a lot on that issue. I also worked a lot outside of NASA because I was the NASA representative to a lot of discussions that took place across the U.S. federal government on things like what are the what are the research priorities for studying our oceans? What are our research priorities for studying the Arctic? So all the U.S. federal government agencies that are involved in that research get together to make sure we're doing stuff that's complementary. We're not we're not you know duplicating research, and we're really moving the science forward in the most critical areas. So we I did a lot of sort of that cross federal agency work. How does the politics work? Is, does it interfere? Does it get in the way? Does it help? Yeah, so a lot of people don't understand that, that NASA is actually part of the U.S., um, part of the federal government that's the executive branch. So NASA is under the president, and so the president sets the policy. But in the U.S., the, the common phrase we use is the president proposes and Congress disposes. So that means that the president can propose what he wants, but Congress decides what to spend money on. So ultimately, um, you know, it's it's very different from in the in the UK because the president can propose something and Congress can pretty much completely ignore him. And so that's always an interesting dynamic. So, for example, under President Obama, um, President Obama was constantly trying to increase the Earth science budget at NASA, and Congress would cut it back again. Um, Congress was really putting a lot of money into our new rocket, the Space Launch System. Um, The administration would try to lower the budget. And and so there's always this tension going on, no matter if they're from the same party or not, on exactly what the policies should be. But at NASA, your job is to support the president. So his policies are your policies um, because you work for him. um, And that's the way it is. There must be so many missions that are proposed there must be some that you looked at and went wow that's amazing and it just didn't happen well it's always really hard when you get science proposals in and we have different usually cost categories that people will propose to or they'll think about doing Um, but again we really look to the academy of sciences that's why we do look to the academy of sciences to give us the priorities because it is really hard to make a decision and so you have to say all these things are really cool but what is really going to move the science forward? And that's why you have to go back to the subject matter experts and say, you know, what should we do next? And so, um, in general, I, I, I really supported the decisions that had been made. Um, one of the programs, though, I'd love to really keep an eye on is a program we have that most people don't know about. It's um, If you go to the website, it's N-I-A-C. We say NIAC. 
um, NIA stands for NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, but it's, I think, NIAC.nasa.gov. Um, and we let people propose really far out ideas because if you're not if you're not starting to work on things that could happen 30 years from now 30 years is going to come and you're going to be nowhere so you really have to give some seed corn to some wild ideas and i'm talking about wild ideas like submarines to explore the seas on titan um giant space uh, spider-like robotic spacecraft that can spin a web to build a giant space uh, telescope in space that would help us image planets around other stars so those are the the things i really love and love to look at are those NIAC proposals some of which got funded that are really like where are we going 30 years from now and those are fun because they're almost like science fiction when i or my daughter sees people walk on mars you've put together the plans for that um, I did. While I was um, at NASA over about the last year, we really pushed hard to say, what's affordable? Because you can come up with all kinds of what we call architectures. What's, what's the actual plan to go from where we are today doing research on the ISS to actually having boots on Mars? So you can come up with different pathways or architectures. But a lot of the times when NASA's done that in the past, they put together an architecture and then they cost it. And then they say, whoa, okay, that costs a lot of money. Instead, we really said, how much money do we have? What can we do that's actually affordable? And can we still get there? And we found out, yes, by the early 2030s, we can put humans in orbit around Mars. Um, if we really use cost as, a, as an input constraint, not as an output, that then shocks us that it's too big. Uh, and so we really took a different approach. We, uh, the, All the parts of NASA were working together, our technology people, our human spaceflight people, our science people. We really sat down and struggled through this together, and I think we've come up with a pretty good plan. And I will say along the way, we've been working with our international partners. We've been working with private companies to say, you know, we can't do this on our own. This isn't Apollo. This is a you know, we don't have the resources to do it alone. And plus, why would we go alone when some of the best minds are located all over the world or maybe at a private company? We're going to do this in partnership. So we work, obviously, NASA has always worked with um, private companies, but certainly recently there's this whole rise of what we call new space. Um, companies like SpaceX, like Blue Origin, um, smaller companies like Planet or Digital Globe that are really changing the way we do Earth observations and really helping through all this competition, all this activity to bring the cost down. And that's frankly, is still one of the biggest issues with exploiting space is the cost of access. It's getting from the surface of the Earth up into space. Uh, we, we are in the middle of a period of uncertainty. As it currently stands, our Prime Minister, Theresa May, is, is trying to form a, some sort of partnership with, with a party that has people in it who are young Earth creationists. Why does it matter that if politicians aren't scientifically literate? You know, we, we live in a society, and Carl Sagan actually commented on this years ago in a very prescient way. <clears throat> you know, we carry around computers in our back pockets, our cell phones that are more advanced than the computers that got us to the moon. Um, we live in a society where everything we do technologically, you know, really affects our day-to-day -day decisions. We live on a planet where we are altering the atmosphere in fundamental ways that is actually a threat um, to human life on this planet. And, and so for our leaders not to, they don't need to be scientists, they don't need to be engineers, but they need to understand 
that what's going around them is complicated. So whether it's worrying about the latest outbreak of Ebola, whether it's worrying about switching to renewables and how reliable they are, whether it's worrying about how do we worry about security in other countries in terms of potential climate refugees uh, of the future. And, and frankly, a lot of scientists have pointed out the drought in Syria that is linked to climate change is part of what precipitated all the issues in Syria, um, you know, creating obviously a lot of refugees that have destabilized um, a lot of the world. These are things that affect government decisions on a day-to-day basis. And if you don't have scientific experts around you and technology experts, if you're not seeking out those opinions, you're going to make decisions that are ill-informed and potentially decisions that have really negative consequences. And there's a lot of concern in the United States right now that President Trump has still not appointed anyone to the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Most of the major science uh, agencies do not have leads, and it's really a problem. Now, one of the things about being at Cheltenham Science Festival during election week is that the topic of politics comes up even more often than it would do normally. And among the scientists there, they have a particular view, and I wanted to bring you some of those. Professor Raymond Tallis is a doctor, a philosopher, a poet, a polymath. And he's very concerned about the way that politicians misuse science. When it comes to the use that politicians make of science, I, as a scientist, if I had no hair, I'd be tearing it out in lumps. There's several ways you can misuse science. One is to pretend you've got evidence-based policy when actually you've got policy-based evidence. But that you have huge support in the media who are very much used to checking, cherry-picking data And if I had a million pounds to put into journalism, my million pounds would go into insisting on denominators every time we have a figure. Because we seem to, particularly the Daily Mail is a particular uh, culprit in this respect, they are especially uh, able to produce staggering figures without ever putting them in any kind of perspective. Health tourism is one example. Actually, by the way, we are greater experts, exports, exporters of health tourists than we are importers. One of the most wicked examples, and I speak as a medic now, was Jeremy Hunt's use of the increase in weekend mortality. And when you'd actually corrected for the different kind of patients who come in as emergencies, there was no increase in weekend mortality. Nothing significant anyway. It certainly was not related to the wrong kind of doctors with the wrong kinds of contracts. He has his own agenda. In 2009, he wrote a book or edited a book called Direct Democracy, which called for the privatisation of the NHS. And he's got four strategies. One is to defund the NHS, the other is decredit, discredit it, the third is to demoralise it, and the fourth is to dismantle it, which is what is happening at the moment. So it's all part of a strategy to follow up a long-standing 30-year Tory dream of getting rid of the NHS. That's Professor Raymond Tallis talking to me at the Cheltenham Science Festival last week. And just over this weekend, I was at the Festival of Nature in, here in Bristol. It was a wonderful festival. And at the festival, I bumped into Dr Lauren Gavahan, who's a consultant doctor in the NHS, who you may recognise because she'd been very vocal in the recent election campaign talking about the NHS and the government's plans for it. And following on from Professor Raymond Tallis's thoughts there, I thought it'd be interesting to find out why she'd felt the need to get involved in the campaigning. My activity in this area started during the junior doctor's dispute, so I'm no longer a junior doctor. I've just become a consultant working in Bristol. 
but I have been very, very involved for the last two years. And the government started a, a sort of dispute with us as junior doctors, saying they wanted to change our contracts. It was sort of simplified, and I think that it started off with a very purposeful um, sort of framing, really, of us as junior doctors. This was their terminology, not ours. I'm now 37 years old. I've just become a consultant. And this was, you know, in the last two years. So a 35-year-old doctor who's practiced for years, and they framed us as junior doctors. There was no mistake about that. That was about the government making sure that the public saw this as a bunch of kind of, you know, just out of school, medical school kind of young brats, complaining, whinging, and therefore, what was the problem? So I think it was a very interesting time. And I suppose I started getting really involved when Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary, who, who sadly seems to have retained his seat somehow in this election, um, started uh, purposefully misinterpreting medical journals. Uh, one was the British Medical Journal in which there was an article about sort of weekend deaths. And Jeremy Hunt used a particular paper in there which said categorically, and the words were, this should not be kind of used as, as proof that there is any um, link in terms of causality between these weekend deaths of patients at, uh, uh, on the weekend and junior doctors or anything else. They didn't know what the causes were. They, they recognised there might be a spike in deaths. Jeremy Hunt basically took this as the sort of tagline of his whole argument against junior doctors. So he went out in Parliament, he went out in public and said 11,000 people were dying every year because of no junior doctors on the wards. This was completely false. And, you know, to see a politician not only spreading complete mistruths to the public, but also using our journals as doctors as the reason, as the sort of foundation for this argument, was completely wrong in my opinion. And it was at that point I really felt very strongly and I felt that we had to do something. And there were a number of doctors who were very heavily involved uh, we did a lot. We complained to Parliament. We went to the Statistics Authority. We did a lot to try and actually get that taken out. And he did actually stop saying that eventually. But the damage was done. And we met people and there were studies done then on patients who basically didn't go to hospital at weekends because they were so scared, because he'd made the public so, so terrified. And they came to great harm. Now, of course, I'm not going to say that was, you know, causally linked, of course, you know, there's many factors as to whether or not a person gets ill, but certainly he did not help that situation. And I think as doctors, you've got to sort of stand up and say it's, it's not acceptable. You know, it's just not on for a politician to, to essentially lie to the public um, when it causes our patient harm. You know, and that was my, I suppose, premise. And then, and then time went on and... You know, you sort of really, I know after this last two years that ignorance is bliss, really. I was so not politically engaged and I was so uh, naive, actually, about the politics of the NHS, which was lovely. But I suppose once you begin to know, you want to know more. And our relationships then became much more sort of deepened with the press, with other uh, politicians. And we got to really, I mean, my biggest learning point was this very unbelievable toxic relationship between government and press and of course we've seen that in the recent election I mean it's extraordinary how the public are really just taken for a ride really with these newspapers so as much as saying that I think there's great journalists out there so you know we had some amazing journalists really writing the the, the facts and what was really going on that relationship between government and press what do you mean by that okay so there was this 11,000 deaths thing right and that went all over the papers Jeremy Hunt was saying it all over the place in parliament and so on then we saw there was this very interesting point at which 
Jeremy Hunt uh, was meeting with Sir Bruce Keogh, who's one of the top people in the NHS, who I hear is a wonderful man. I've never met him myself. However, that was around the time of the Paris attacks. So, you know, the country was scared. Everyone was very kind of uptight around what was going on. Of course, there was a lot going on about terrorism in the news and so on. And Jeremy Hunt's office, we only found out retrospectively, because a lot of doctors, doctors are pretty determined people who, you know, focus on details. So they weren't letting this go. And a lot of people did FOI requests to find out what was actually going on before certain articles were put out. And it was very interesting because there was, a, at the time of the Paris attacks, then Sir Bruce Keogh came out on live television and said that they were very disappointed in junior doctors because actually would we go and respond if there was a terrorist attack. Now that is really for me the most awful thing for someone to say. Now Bruce Keogh, you know, he's part of the NHS and Jeremy Hunt uh, subsequently we found out had basically sexed up this article. So there was a whole front page article saying, you know, terrible doctors aren't going to respond even if there's a terror attack. How dare they go on strike kind of thing, you know, bringing the country down shameful, all should be reported to the GMC kind of thing. And we found out subsequently through an FOI that that had all been sexed up by Jeremy Hunt's office. So you see again, absolutely toxic, damaging manipulation really of the media and of our profession. I mean, what is so disappointing to me and what really kind of got shattered in my mind was this sort of perhaps a very idealistic notion that we work in the NHS, it's all great, everyone cares, everyone's on the same page. But actually in that time, really, we saw politicians meddling. Literally every single Sunday in the Mail on Sunday, there was absolutely without fail an article that was to smear doctors. So these guys were going on Facebook, lifting people's Facebook pictures, right? This is meant to be their personal business and putting it in articles and sort of lifting uh, text out of the Junior Doctors Forum, which was this Facebook forum that was formed, out of context, and then sort of presenting some, some false news story. So one particular one was, you know, Moe Medics. Actually, that was our hashtag. It was, a, it was a, 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 us being sarcastic and fighting against this sort of thing. But, they, they, you know, they got one medical, uh, one doctor's stuff, and, and got a picture off Facebook with her with an elephant or something in Sri Lanka or something, saying, you know, here's this rich doctor off on holiday. How can they possibly go on strike? They have all the money in the world, blah, blah, blah. Actually, it turned out she was away volunteering, you know, in a hospital. So again, you just think, wow, this is what this is. And that happened every Sunday. The press went around to people's houses. They found their mothers, you know, at home on their doorsteps and started talking about, you know, is your daughter this, that, or the other. I mean, it was, it was shameful. We shouldn't say that this is just a particular colour of politician that does this kind of thing, but the current government seem to be very, very carefully choosing their words. And if you look behind their words then you see a whole other story. And one, the one that I'm thinking of particularly is every time Jeremy Hunt or Theresa May are asked about the NHS, they'll say, we agree with the Naylor report. And I believe that they say that because they know that nobody will go and read what the Naylor report says. So, I mean, what we're seeing is really a, a, a huge shift in what's happening with the NHS. And there's this notion that the NHS isn't being privatised. I think it's complete nonsense. I mean, I live in 
Bristol at the moment, everywhere around Bristol is being taken over by Virgin. People will tell you oh, that it's just outsourcing, but basically that's, the, that's what's happening. I mean, these guys are taking over the NHS at a rapid pace. The Naylor report, um, which, yes, Theresa May endorsed fully, she said she fully backed the Naylor report on her Andrew Neil interview, um, is exactly, you're right, people won't go and read it. And actually that is all about selling off NHS assets, uh, you know, to, to basically get uh, lots of money. And I think that, you know, you're right, people won't read it. And what we are seeing in the NHS, the reality on the ground is that actually lots of old NHS buildings are either sort of... Um, sort of termed derelict or you know unusable that they're falling apart and actually I think it's partly due to just closing down these buildings there was a point actually at which I was speaking to a nurse the other day and they were saying that recently in the last sort of year couple of years there was a real move to actually move NHS workers right these are people on the front line dealing with patients if you think about mental health services they're dealing with very distressed people trying to make them feel better trying to make people value themselves and what happened was nurses particularly but a lot of NHS staff were being moved out of offices so that they no longer had an office. A lot of NHS staff no longer have offices. They're hot desking all day long and they were given a laptop and told to go and do the work in cafes. And I think that is part of this this movement, you see, to get people out of the buildings, to sell it off. Um, And we know, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not new. This is 30 years worth of work. I mean, in the 80s, going back to the 80s, uh, Oliver Letwin, you know, wrote a whole thing on uh, the NHS being privatised. He himself then said within five years of a Conservative government there would be no NHS. Jeremy Hunt wrote a book in 2005 in which he very specifically said he wanted to break down the links you know, between public and private provision and, and lead to a private NHS. Cameron endorsed it. It's a great business opportunity, he said. You know, We've had it from everybody. It's a funny thing, isn't it, because it's, it is so out in the open. It's a, I mean, Theresa May is effectively by saying... I fully endorse the Naylor report. He's saying, I fully endorse selling off NHS assets. And that's what they say consistently. It's not hidden. But as you say, there's this sort of collusion, in a way, between the press. So the press are happy to not report that as well. And we as the public are just... um, Well, you you can talk to anybody, and there's people who are you know kind of fervently in defense of the nhs and and probably maybe people who wouldn't even consider voting for this particular government who would say it's not really being privatized so that message just doesn't get through does it no it doesn't and i think um it's it's very clever it's very clever what they're doing i mean really you've got to give them that it's extraordinarily clever you know they've done it they're doing it by stealth and it's so complicated but you think about the strikes right our junior doctor strikes I don't believe that this government want uh, want NHS doctors to stay here. I mean, I think that part of the strike was about trying to get us out. I mean, you know, what they don't want is doctors are, yeah, we we are a cost, a huge cost. That's the main cost, isn't it, to the NHS? Assets, buildings, people, uh, and medications to a lesser degree. But we are the major cost, and I think that what we are moving to, and it's very clear because you see it happening, you know, it's not just made up, it's... They're following a U.S. model. So actually what's happening in terms of these sustainability and transformation plans, it's termed in the Conservative Manifesto as the NHS's own plan. Now, this is so the government can say, we are just following the NHS's own plan. Actually, it's not. Look at where that came from. You've got Simon Stevens heading up the NHS. He used to work for United Health in the United States. 
right? If you look at the model that's being introduced, it's not the NHS's own plan at all. This is a this is a model from the US being implanted into the UK. What the government want is to replace doctors with a less skilled workforce, just as in the just as in the US. You know, get in sort of physicians' assistants, uh, get in nursing assistants, and you're seeing that you're seeing nurses now. Their bursary got taken away. I mean, come on, what government would take away the nursing bursary? These are people that often you know work very hard. They can't get extra jobs and often go into it because they love it not because they're rich so taking that away was absolutely uh, key to to ensuring that people didn't come into nursing if they want people to come into nursing if they want an NHS they're not going to do everything in their power to alienate a whole generation of doctors and to make sure that nurses don't go into nursing because they don't have money you know it's just it's clear the other thing that is very interesting so when you look at January 2017 six less than six six months ago you know, the NHS was, was termed by the Red Cross, right, to be in a state of humanitarian crisis. We had people dying on hospital trolleys in hospitals in England in 2017. I mean, come on. We are not a, a, a low-income country. So that was very interesting because, of course, that was in winter. They blame it all on the winter pressures. It's absolute nonsense because this is a year-round problem. We're so grossly understaffed. You're seeing A&Es closing. You're seeing maternity units closing. Um, again, part of the plan, because what they're trying to do is say they want more care in the community. The problem with that is if there's no services set up in the community, you're not going to be able to look after patients. It's, it's really clear. Like we, We're dealing with very high-risk patients in the community now because all the hospital beds have been taken away. And this humanitarian crisis was very interesting because actually that was used in a beautiful way by government, right? If you looked at all the papers, look at every paper, and it quite rightly should have been put out there for the public to see and we were very pleased in some sense as doctors that finally something was being shown that actually yes these people were dying it was totally and utterly unacceptable you know to have in this country people dying on hospital trolleys without dignity without comfort I mean it's just hideous but it was used then in a very nice way because of course if you tell the public oh my god you know there's all these people dying on trolleys a humanitarian crisis the NHS is breaking which it is but what do people do they go, oh my God, I don't want to go to NHS in the more anymore. I need to go and find private healthcare. And we are also seeing, so when we went on strike, government absolutely vilified us, saying, you know, patients would come to harm. We were doing the most disgusting thing by leaving our patients abandoned. Remember, consultants, other NHS staff, nurses, were all still at work. It was just the junior doctors that were off. So there was a very, very clear and robust plan to maintain safety. When this humanitarian crisis became press news in January um, and then the government sort of played with that as a, as a means of turning people off the NHS, we then see government saying, well, actually, we're going to just leave these waiting lists. So people are on huge waiting lists for hip operations, knee operations, in excruciating pain, which they vilified us for and didn't happen. But they're quite happy to see the public waiting on these waiting lists. Again, why? Why? Because people get fed up. They're in excruciating pain. They say, you know what? I'll go and pay for my operation. And who's waiting in the wings? Beautiful private healthcare companies. And who's all involved in those? Politicians. You know, these guys are involved in it all. So it's very beautifully done, but it's just so sad that the public don't see that a lot of time. I do think people are are waking up to it though. On Sky News I just saw uh, in the last couple of days the main 
sort of issue that people were concerned about during this vote was health. So 23% of people, that was their main top issue. It's just we've got to get people knowing actually what's going on. Well, if we're waking up to it now, what can we do? I think it's about spreading the news, first of all. I think it's so important, particularly to the older generation, OK? What we're seeing is the older generation, you know, read these rags and believe them, sadly. And um, we have got to, I think, as a younger generation, make sure that people are aware of it. I wasn't aware of it as a doctor, can you imagine? So I can't expect that others, others would be. So I think we've got to talk to each other, and I think that's the most powerful thing. I think we've got to use social media. Forget about mainstream media that's good it's not worked this time around fantastic movement has been made let's use social media as a means of really getting people up to scratch and getting aware of what's going on I think it's also um, thinking about a new government I mean you know clearly I was very much for Jeremy Corbyn and I wish he had got in I think we've made great gains and I think it will happen but I think that you know it's about thinking about in the future not for the public but to look at the whole sort of legislation around the NHS. Jeremy Corbyn was going to repeal the Health and Social Care Act. That was an act in 2012 which essentially opened the NHS up to unlimited privatisation. So that's key, absolutely key. And he's determined to kind of turn around some of those private contracts and not have them operating. He'll also return the nurse's bursary and so on. Um, so I do think that's important. But, you know, people won't vote for a party unless they know the facts. And I think it's up to all of us to to make that happen really I think people have to get out there themselves and you know come talk to people like you um, go on the radio go on news write articles whatever um, yeah okay um, I can't let you go before I ask you what it is you're actually a consultant in what do you do for uh, your job yes I work in eating disorders now so that's my specialty so I'm a psychiatrist so I went through medical school you do all that uh, training and then did general psychiatry for six years and now I'm in eating disorders. We uh, often manage extremely high-risk cases in the community. Anorexia has the highest mortality of any mental health disorder. We're seeing people sent halfway across the country, young girls primarily, to just get a bed. So we're, we're dealing with a disorder that absolutely needs work with families, work with communities, reintegrating people who've become very isolated and very sort of caught up in a very, very severe uh, illness. And we can't do that a lot of the time because they're sent halfway across the country away from everyone they know. So I think we've got to uh, pay attention to that. The, the government have said they've put some money into child and adolescent eating disorders but I just don't think it's enough I don't think they take it seriously enough and I think I'd really be the first to advocate for my patients really they need beds and they need them they need them in a timely fashion you know people die of heart attacks and and cardiovascular sort of collapse in eating disorders and if we don't get them treated quickly uh, you know it can end really badly so yeah Okay. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. That's Dr. Lauren Gavahan talking to me at the Festival of Nature. I did misspeak slightly in that when I said that Theresa May and Jeremy Hunt both always talk about the Naylor Report when they talk about the NHS. Of course, that's not quite true. It's an exaggeration. Sometimes they talk about the NHS without saying that they fully support the Naylor Report. And again, that Naylor Report recommends selling off assets of the NHS. I should also say that, of course, Jeremy Hunt is not here to defend himself, but he is on Twitter, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Love and Science. Hopefully, Malcolm will be with me. He's in Salzburg today. I don't know what he's doing. Something amazing, no doubt. And thank you so much for listening.